a long form of Tradition 1. Each member of Alcoholics Anonymous is but a small part of a great whole. AA must continue to live, or most of us will surely die. That's about as declarative as it gets. The only other place in there I know that it's as declarative in the big book is uh, uh, about resentments, where it says about taking our fourth step. It says if we skip this step, vital step, we may not overcome drinking. Here, A must continue to live or most of us will surely die. Hence, our common welfare comes first. But individual welfare follows close afterward. The short version, which you're more used to hearing, is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Well, let's try the concepts. Let me try the... Uh, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. And the way that was explained to me in my personal life is that... Uh, Put us first and not me first. And I had spent my whole life putting me first, and I didn't know how to do anything uh, about that until I got through recovery. But after I got through recovery, I became an active member. I was there taking as much as I could in the very beginning. I was the ashtray guy, so I did have a job. But I didn't know how this functioned. I didn't know how to be of any help. I wasn't involved in any kind of committee or anything like that. I didn't have a relationship. I'd lost that. So I, I lived kind of on an island unto myself, even though all these people were helping me. But part of the blessing was that as I started to get sober and started to meet people and started to have relationships and started to have a job, I needed to find out exactly how to act with other people. Barbara and I, I told you last night, Barbara and I met when I was doing a ninth step to a church. <clears throat> We've been married for 20 years now. And some of the lessons that I've learned, I've actually learned from her. And uh, um, I'll tell you a story how she, she has a saying that's called, how important is it when I'm putting other people first, when I'm getting me out of the way in a relationship? When Barbara and I were first married, we went through a period where we were kind of surprised at each other. And she was a little bit younger than me and never been involved in a relationship, never lived with anybody before had always lived at home or school or graduate school or wherever. And um, so she had never lived around a guy. And she could not get over the fact that I would not put the toilet seat down. Now, this was no big deal to me because I was used to living by myself for a long time, and so I'd leave the toilet seat up, so I didn't think anything about it. Barbara would call her sponsor. She'll tell you the story. She called her sponsor. She'd say, he leaves the toilet seat up again. Her sponsor says, that's his business. Don't worry about it. She called again. About the fourth or fifth time that Barbara brings it up with her sponsor, her sponsor says, okay, I'm tired of hearing about this. You're going to take some action. I want you, instead of griping about him leaving the toilet seat uh, up, you put the toilet, or leaving the toilet seat uh, yeah, up, that when you get through using the toilet, you put it up for him, rather than waiting for him to put it down for you. And Barbara said, what are you, t you're crazy. And so for a month, my wife took the toilet seat every time she got through using the toilet and put it up. It took me at least one month before I figured out what she was doing, and, then, and I even noticed the difference. The point is, once that was done and we laughed about it, it was over. It wasn't the issue of the toilet seat. And it's just like Keith talked about with the knives earlier today. That toilet seat was a sticky issue with us. We were getting very angry at each other. But the importance was that us came before me, and she took the action, the unselfish action, of, of giving in to whatever I was doing. Um, loving each other first, uh, putting each other first, 
and I've followed men that do this. I can tell you that on my 25th AA birthday, I had a couple of guys speak that I follow. And, and both of them have been men that have sponsored me over the years. And one was a guy named Bill uh, R. from uh, over in our area. And Bill spoke about the fact that when he was 17 years sober, he was trying to figure out how to have an affair, uh, how to get rid of his marriage so he could have an affair with another woman. And now he was sitting there that night with 46 years of sobriety with the wife that he would have divorced, blessed because he was able to change her diapers because she has Alzheimer's. And he considers it an honor to be able to be with her and to care for her and nurture her. Because at some point, Bill realized that us was more important than me. And in the doing of that, he got a relationship. He got a commitment. More than just, is this working out? And that's the kind of guys that I follow, and that's why I'm following. My other sponsor was there. My other sponsor uh, had been uh, kind of a 13th stepper for a while. It seems like in my early days of, of AA, whenever I went out with anybody, uh, uh, they had either gone out with him or another fellow named Conway, and this guy's name was John, and John was a good-looking guy, and, and he had trouble with relationships. And at some point he had to realize that us was more important than me. And when he took that step, he married Mary Emma, and my sponsor's named John Holmes. He's been married to Mary Emma for 20 years. John's got 46 years because he taught me that putting the relationship first was what was going to keep it alive. This works for me in other areas. Um, I have a client that I acquired about two years ago. And the client and I at first thought I wasn't going to be able to work out with. I mentioned that I was sick about two and a half years ago. What I didn't mention was in addition to the problems I had at the hospital because I was so sick, I had three strokes. And I had a lot of difficulty in being able to uh, uh, read and being able to do some of the things I did. I didn't tell anybody because I was afraid if people knew that, nobody would hire me. And so I kind of kept that a secret. And I had a very bad year or so. And I had to take on a new client. And this new client was um, someone, it was a smaller company, and it was kind of a humbling job for me, but it paid me something on the first of each month. And I had learned from my sponsors and learned from this fellowship that there's no such thing as pride. And I needed some income because... The set of circumstances that I, I ran up against for this were, one, we had 9-11. Right before that, we had a recession. And within three weeks of 9-11, I was in the hospital, almost died, had three strokes. And I went from being in a fairly comfortable position because of circumstances to a position where I couldn't make my house payments. The honorable thing to do, and we are self-supporting, is to go to work. And I found a client, and the client was somebody who would pay me a monthly fee at the beginning of each month. But he wasn't used to working with somebody who had worked in the areas I'd worked in. And so sometimes he treated me like kind of a low-end employee. Well, that's my own pride that got in the way. And so what I had to make a decision to do was put us first, put my work with him first, and not take what he said to me personally. As a result, he and I are very good friends now. Without me asking, he raised what he paid me by double. And the reason for this is he saw in me the ability to work, to do a good job for him. He would tell me what to do on, on many occasions in almost a condescending manner. I would do it. I would re make recommendations, but I would do what I agreed to do in the first place rather than having to be right, rather than having to be the one that, that showed him what I knew.
I've got three Cleos. You know, that would have been my attitude in the old days. Instead, when I show up at the trade show, which I've designed something for, and he wants me to be there and unbox things and put carpet down, which is not something I've ever done, I did it because he was paying me a fee. He no longer asked me to do things like that because he realizes where I've got talent and where it can better be used. But he, he gave me, doubled my fee in the meantime, and he and I are now praying together about his business. And he has been talking to me about running his business in spiritual principles. And it turned out that he was a guy where he was making a commitment to God at the same time. He doesn't have a drinking problem, but he was trying to learn how to live with these principles at the same time. If I had been right or argued with him, I would have done two things. I would have lost that fee and wouldn't have been able to pay my bills. And two, I would have missed the opportunity to be of help, of service to him. The big book says our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. I would have missed that had I been right. It wasn't that I, that I had to say, I don't know what I'm doing. But I was there to help him, and I didn't have to be a big shot about it. So unity takes a lot of forms. Second uh, tradition, in the short version, is for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trust and servants. They do not govern. And... uh, The long form of that is exactly the same. For our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group consciousness. Couldn't really expand on that too much. And um, what this says to me is that there's one authority, there are no big shots. Not only here, but elsewhere. Barbara and I, in order to stay married over this period of time, have had to learn how to disagree with each other. And there have been quite a few times when we've had some major arguments about how we were going to handle things. And usually it had to do with finances or it had to do with how we were going to take some of our resources and use them in some way. Um, And other occasions, other decisions that we had to make about where we were going to live or what we were going to do. But when we absolutely cannot agree and get to the point where I'd be so angry I'd feel like throwing something at her. We agreed early on before, before we even got married that we'd do this because it was passed along to me by one of the old-timers in Louisville. When she and I disagree to that point, we'll stop, hold hands, pray, turn it over to God, and walk away from it. I believe that's the single most important reason why we're still married and still love each other after all this time. I can't think of anything that we've ever had an argument about, including finances, including anything else, where having turned it over to God, it didn't solve itself at some point. And Barbara and I were laughing about it the other day. When we think back on the issues that we've argued about, we can't really remember what they were. Because when we turned them over to God, a solution came in time. And we weren't working on each other. We were working on being a couple, being purposeful. Keith was talking about writing out the purpose. You know, it tells us what our purpose is, to fit ourselves to be a maximum service to God and the people about us. But we have a purpose in marriage. 
Our purpose is to nurture each other, to, to create a home for each other, to create. We don't have any kids. So in our case, that's not part of the purpose. We got married late. But it's to nurture each other, to care for each other. And that was never more evident than two and a half years ago when I was in that hospital room. And if I hadn't been married, I'd have been by myself. But instead, Barbara was in there when I was in critical condition, sleeping in a chair around the clock for three weeks. And my sister and my brother, whom I had made amends to, who I disagreed with a lot in the past, were down here sleeping in a chair because we were more important than me and because I had learned to have a relationship. For years I thought it was up to me. I've got the kind of personality where I thought it was up to me to run things. What I do is write and direct, direct, produce. Uh, I played quarterback. Almost every position I've ever had has been one where I was involved in decision-making, allocating how other people would do things. That is not how you lead. I've learned that the hard way over a, a number of years. There is no authority except God, which means when I'm trying to be of leadership, even if I'm working with people in a film project, um, my job is to pull out the best of each of them because God has given each of them some talent, some knowledge, and I may have a vision about where we're supposed to go. But my job is really to be the coordinator of their talents. Right now I'm serving in a service position, which I did not, um, I was really trying to be archivist a couple of years ago, and, I, and somebody asked me to stand for this position, and now I'm delegate in Georgia. And as such, I get a lot of people that will come to me and ask me questions as though I'm supposed to solve a problem for them. And what I've had to learn to do is not give them a direct answer. I give them the best information I can saying, um, on one hand, this makes sense. On the other hand, this makes sense. And I think a good group conscience will give you the verdict and, and uh, good luck. Because it's not my job to dictate what they do in their group. It's not my job to dictate what they do anyplace else. And I've had to learn to get me out of the way. I had my first, I learned this lesson on my first pigeon, a guy named Al B., who looks remarkably like Dr. Bob. Any of that Roanoke group still here? Okay. Doesn't he look like, doesn't Al look like Dr. Bob? Anyway, uh, he was my first pigeon, and he was assigned to me. And I worked as hard as I could to get him sober. And I explained everything about the program, and I read to him out of the book, and I did everything I could for Al. And Al would continue to go back out and drink. And I'd get irritated, and Al would continue to go back out and drink. And I'd get more irritated, and I couldn't understand why he didn't understand what I was telling him, this gift that I was giving him. Finally, Al's father called me, and he was crying. He said, Al got drunk again, and I don't know what to do. And I said, well, Mr. B., if um, I had a job, and I was vice president of my dad's company, I had a car, and I had credit cards, and I had all this, and I could go out and get drunk and come back and still have my position, I'd still be drinking too. So Al's father fired him the next day. Al got sober two days later. He's been sober ever since. He's just celebrated 25 years, and he's a, he's a fine member. I had absolutely nothing to do with that. God had something to do with it. And that was the lesson that I had to learn in, in, in all of my life. There's one authority, and we don't have big shots. The third tradition, the only requirement for AA's membership is a desire to stop drinking. The short version of that is we don't judge motives. 
If anybody had tried to judge my motive when I was working any of the steps in the beginning, I would not have made it because my motives weren't pure. I was working most of the steps so I could get something. When I made an amends, it was because I thought I was going to get something out of it. I wasn't genuinely accepting responsibility for my actions until I was almost halfway through my ninth step because I was trying to do something for me because you told me that's what I needed to do. I told last night about this, the, the situation where I went to Hartmus, who was the comptroller for this company. And if I had judged her motives, I would not have made this amend because I was absolutely sure I was going to prison. And instead, she was the woman that, when I tried to make amends and told her I had stolen $30,000 from this company, told me that there were a group of people who had been praying for me. And they forgave that debt. I would never have guessed that. But that was because I was doing what God asked me to do. And I'm glad I did not judge her motives. The story that I told last night about that Catholic priest, if there were two groups that I resented the most in, in religion, it were the Baptist, that's where I went to church, and the Catholics, because I was around a lot of Catholics, and I just resented these rules, and I hated all of the rules. That Catholic priest gave me the gift of a lifetime, and I shared it with you last night, how to identify God's will. In a gentle and merciful way, I could understand the story about the two kids with the red wagon in a way when I could not understand anything that anybody else told me. And it stuck with me to this day and allowed me to do one day at a time, accept what God gives me, and use it the best I can to be of help to somebody else. When I was about three or four years sober, I was dealing with lust. And there was a group that I felt really intolerant of about sexual conversations. It was the Baptist Church. And because of that, I guess through some kind of wisdom, my sponsor said, you need to go ask your pastor about that. Keith talked about that earlier. Because I was so afraid of judgment, I was so afraid that somebody was going to hit me. I was so afraid I was going to be punished. I was so afraid I was going to be embarrassed. I was so afraid I was going to be told that I was no good. And I go to this Baptist minister who was the same minister at the, at the church I grew up in as a child, was still there. And I told him what I was there for, and he said, he didn't give me any judgment. He said, let's pray. I had the most significant spiritual experience of my life that day. While he and I knelt in prayer, this tremendous undulation and light came into the room. And it was so powerful and so awesome that I was afraid to open my eyes. And there was a smell almost like fresh flowers. And I've read about these kind of experiences since then, but I'd never heard of one before that. And I was absolutely awestruck and couldn't open my eyes and didn't know what to do. And when I got through, this pastor had felt the same experience. And I said, what does that mean? He said, I don't know, but God sent you a message. All my life I'd been around rules and regulations and military and you, thou shalt not and you cannot and so forth. But what happened in this case, because I was willing not to judge the motives of this Baptist preacher and to go and ask for his help, I was given this glimpse, this feel of the awesome power of God as a heavenly father. 
Two days later, I was in a mall, and there were a couple of good-looking babes walking across, and I was sexualizing them, and I was thinking about I used to watch girls and think what it would be like to have sex with them, and, and, and that's how I would spend my time in the mall. These two girls walk in front of me, and the thought went through my mind that when I went out with a girl whose family I did not know, I could be fairly aggressive. When I went out with a, a girl whose father I knew and respected, I would respect that girl. And because of that, I suddenly got the picture. This power that I had felt just a little bit of, that was so awesome, was the heavenly father of all these girls. She was a child of God. And there's not one woman on this planet that I don't need to treat with respect for her father. And if I'm asking her father to give me the power to stay sober, and the power to find a good and useful life, and the power to have a wife, and the power to overcome disease two and a half years ago, and the power to do all of the things that I asked for. How can I go to that father in good faith while I'm disrespecting his daughters? And that was a gentle, kind way for God to give me that lesson. I never would have gotten that lesson if I had judged the motives of this pastor that I was going to. Me prejudging people has always been a problem. I know what they're going to say before I ask them. And in each of these cases, I found out that wasn't true. The fourth tradition, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or, AA, other groups or AA as a whole. Independent, yes, but only to a point. Individual freedom ends when it threatens us, when it threatens our unity. In 1999, I was doing a film up in Akron uh, called House Full of Miracles, and I'd been asked to do this, and we went up, and I was prepping the film. And I had been to Founders Day in 1978. And in 1978, it was like going back to the mother church of AA, and there were, everybody was respectful, and they were wearing coats and ties, and all the old-timers were up there, and it was a tremendous experience. And it, was, and it was like learning about the early days of Alcoholics Anonymous. I started talking to different people around town because we were going to shoot in a lot of different places. And I said, we're going to premiere this uh, over Founders Day. And they said, oh, no, Founders Day, we leave town. A lot of them come into town, they make a lot of noise, they're up all night, and they trash the place. Now, if I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I go to a conference and I'm up all night making a lot of noise, and I trash the place. If we did that here, and we leave this place trashed, if only one person who would know that we were Alcoholics Anonymous would say, I don't want to be any part of them, we've just killed somebody. So our independence and how we have our meetings, just like that meeting in Maryland that I mentioned, ends when it affects other people and when it affects how people think of A as a whole. Tradition five, each group has but one primary purpose to carry its message to the alcoholic still, who still suffers. And in my life, that's what is my primary purpose? What's our primary purpose? Stay focused. In my family, what's our primary purpose? It's like Keith talking about uh, earlier. We write down what our family's purpose is. What are we to do? We nurture each other. We care for each other. We support each other. We offer unconditional love when you get banged up at work, when you get banged up my relatives, when things happen, Barbara's going through a tough time right now, we had, to, we had to make a decision that we were going to stay 
in the Atlanta area, this is before I got involved in the service position that I'm in now, but we were thinking about moving over to North Carolina. But we made a decision to stay here because her mother and father need our help. That's God's will. She's the caretaker for her mom and dad, and they were getting to the point where they need some help, and sometimes they're difficult to deal with. But we need to offer them unconditional love, and what we do in our relationship with each other is we're absolutely supportive. If she has a problem someplace, if she has a problem with her, with her mother, if she has a problem at work, she works at a treatment center for alcoholic doctors, and some of them can be pretty tough to deal with. And she does a lot of good for people. But every day is not a good day, and I need to be there to be supportive for her. That's our purpose, to support each other, to give a cradle, to give a family, to give safe harbor from what, it, what takes place outside. That's the reason for our family. It's not just so we can have a good time. We do have a lot of good times. We travel. She loves the program. This girl that I was engaged to that I talked about, that I broke up with, um, my inclination was to, when I thought that I wanted to make amends to her, that was to get back with her because I still had the hots for her after I got sober. My sponsor says, that's not how we make amends. What's your primary purpose? Your purpose is to be of help to her. And because of that, I did not try to go get her. I just made my amends. I did the things I needed to. I was polite. I kept at a distance. I shared with her from my heart how sorry I was for many of the things I did. And because of that, when the time came, she accepted that amends. When the time came, she did call me, and her husband had a drinking problem, and I was able to help her get to Al-Anon, and their family now has been sober and members of the fellowship for 18 years. And that wouldn't have happened had I not remembered my purpose. In the big book, there is no, there's not one good thing that comes to us without... us having a purpose in the first place. This is about taking the third step. When we sincerely took such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. Being all-powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. As we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We were reborn. But I'm required to do something first. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. Both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. When we look back, we realize that the things we, which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power, and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances. I have to follow the dictates, and then I'm going to presently live. I have to turn it over to a new employer and then keep close to him, and he'll provide everything that I need. So if I don't know what my purpose is, I'm not going to get fed. I'm not going to find what I need. I'm not going to have the promises come true because the purpose always precedes provision in the big book. And this tradition, more than any other, tells me to stay focused on uh, that purpose. Example of how you can get off purpose even in business. Um, I did a film on the railroad industry. In the 30s and 40s, the railroads transported 
80% of all the people in cargo in the United States. But by the 1960s, they were less than 10%, and most of them were failing. What was their purpose? They forgot. Their purpose was not to be in the railroad business. Their purpose was transportation. And it was that simple. Had they kept their eyes on the fact that it, my job is to help transport people, to carry them someplace, then they would have looked at trucks and planes and the other ways that took over from them. But instead they got caught up by not changing, by not adapting. We do that in Alcoholics Anonymous. We have websites in most states now, and for a while people didn't think we should go to websites. But they had the same discussion for, uh, in the beginning about how much they should use the phone. When something new comes along, our purpose is to carry the message. It's not the details, it's the message that's important. And that's the reason that, you know, Disney recently, uh, Disney's family entertainment, they recently took some kind of PR splash and decided they were going to get involved in gay rights, which was totally apart from their business plan. And it came back to bite them. And some of that feedback came back, and their chairman of the board was let go or moved out of his position not too long ago. Sixth tradition. An A group ought never endorse, finance, or lend A name to any related facility or outside enterprise. Those problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. The way that was explained to me is mind your own business. I have had at least 14 or 15 emails from one particular fellow who was trying to correct an AA, quote, club in the Atlanta area recently. He got in touch with GSO. He got in touch with Intergroup. He called me. And it finally got to the point where he had argued so much with these people that were running the clubhouse that they got a restraining order and he can't go there anymore. He thought he was following the traditions. He thought he was helping AA. But we're not affiliated with clubs. We're not affiliated with any of them. The wisdom of our traditions is that we don't get involved in outside activities. And on, on a personal level, mind my own business means that in order to stay good friends with my dad, I have to stay away from politics because he and I totally disagree on politics. But it's a simple thing. And, if I, and I found after I got sober and after I went to a great length to make amends to him and I was accepted, my dad was this man that I had alienated myself from, knocked down when I got back from Vietnam to go out to get a drink. When I got sober, it was like the prodigal son. My dad opened up, and he was one of the first people to welcome me back. But there was still a lot of injury done, and I had to prove myself. And I called him every Sunday, and I talked to him every week, and I went to visit him. And when I would go, I would try to do things that weren't so self-centered, things that were loving, and not to go to get, but to go to be part of the family and to fit in and not have to be the main thing. And I finally built that relationship up over a period of time. And I was 15 years sober and sitting and talking to him, and all of a sudden we're in a huge argument. And he's screaming and yelling because of politics. So that's none of my business. What he does, who he votes for, any of that, that's his business. I had to learn that there are things that I just leave alone. When I first got married to Barbara, 
I wanted to help control her. I wanted to control her program. So I was kind of, it was me versus her sponsor. I had to learn to mind my own business and get out of the business of her. And by, by doing that, she, she started listening to her sponsor, and it gives us a lot of freedom. She goes her way when we have a problem. I go my way. I talk to my sponsor. She talks to her sponsor. We stay married. Most important, when I'm doing things that aren't my business, I'm wasting time and energy that I could be using to do God's will. This is the most important awakening for me in probably the last five years, is that I have spent a lot of time and energy doing things that really didn't amount to anything when I could have been spending my time, my energy, and gaining financial freedom to do what God wanted me to do. And when I do what God wants me to do, I get rewarded.